Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show. I have a great conversation for you all this week, and it is very, very relevant given the current news cycle. I sat down with Yuval Levin, who is, in my view, one of the smartest policy minds on the right who is working right now. He's the editor of National Affairs, which is a fantastic policy journal. If you're interested in public policy and you are not reading it, you should be. He is the author of the new book, Fractured America, which I, I really do recommend. It's a fascinating argument about what American politics should be about in this era. He's worked for George W. Bush, for Newt Gingrich. He has advised pretty much every leading Republican Party politician of the day, except for Donald Trump, who I think, as you'll hear in this discussion, he's not the world's biggest fan of. He is a Felty Ethics and Public Policy Center, conservative think tank in Washington, D.C., and he's had all kinds of accolades. He's been recognized far and wide as one of the voices shaping the next conservative consensus, if there is ever going to be a conservative consensus again, which looks less certain than it did maybe a year ago, two years ago. So I think you're really going to enjoy this. We talk a lot about the state of the Republican Party, about what conservatism is and isn't, about what Republicans are and aren't today. We talk about how policymaking works, what it was like to work for George W. Bush, what it was like to work for Newt Gingrich. We talk about his favorite books, about the ways in which working the executive branch changed his view of public policy and the things you read in the press. I think this is a really, really strong discussion for understanding what American politics is like right now, and, and hopefully where it is going. Before we get to Yuval, though, my normal through request for you, please share the show, email, Twitter, Facebook. It is all good. It is all appreciated. Please listen to The Weeds, my other policy podcast with Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff. If you like this podcast, you really will like that one. And finally, continue to send me your feedback, your guest suggestions, funny gifts, whatever it might be, at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. With that, here is Yuval Levin. Thank you for being here. Thank you very I'm much. I'm excited about me. this talk. I've been Thank reading you. Fractured America. I feel very fractured. Well, thanks. <laughs> Hope I haven't depressed you even more than reality has this year. No, it's hard to depress me more than reality has this yeah, year. Me too. So I, I want to start with an odd question. What is the Republican Party? Well, it's an odd question that has to be asked now, of course. In a sense, any political party is an institution that exists to advance some vision of the good and that exists to allow a coalition to cohere. A party is always both of those things. I think the Republican Party has thought of itself more in recent decades as the first, as a vehicle for a vision of the world, a vehicle for conservatism. In reality, of course, it's been at least as much of the latter, of holding together a coalition. 
I think some of the problems it's had is that its own leaders have not seen that as clearly as they might and have assumed that the Republican electorate is more of a conservative electorate than it's been. But, you know, the party is a political institution. Uh, Our constitutional system wasn't designed for parties, but it's lived with parties almost from the very beginning. Both parties are both of these things. They're vehicles for a vision and they're vehicles for a coalition. It's super interesting the way you put that. There's a, I don't know if you've seen this research by Grossman and Hopkins. I'm blanking yeah, on their sure. first They've name. got a great book coming out. Yeah, they do. And they marshal quite a bit of data to show this, that the Democratic Party is more coalition-oriented, more transactional. The Republican Party historically has been more, I think at least philosophically oriented, right. has more about, been about putting forward a vision. And then there was this year. And what do you think happened inside the party? Because when we talk about it, when we talk about it as an institution, it feels like it as an institution changed, but it's very hard to locate yeah. where that change happened. You know, I I have to start with a caveat, which is that everybody's answers to what does this year mean, what does Trump mean, basically amount to, I was right before this happened and this proves it. <laughs> and I'm going to give you an answer that sounds like that too, and I apologize in advance. I think we're all going to learn more as time goes on. And if we talk about this a year from now, hopefully I will have learned something that I didn't think before this all happened. But let me give you the answer that I, the only honest answer I can give you at this point. For a long time now, the political class of the Republican Party has had a view of its own voters that has been in error. It's looked at the base of the party's electorate as a conservative voting base, a very conservative voting base that holds the leader's feet to the fire on allegiance to a very specific agenda. And it's basically the agenda that the party came out of the 1980s with. And that view of the electorate has meant that a lot of Republican politicians think that if they stray from that agenda, they'll get hit, and that they basically don't think they need to persuade their voters of their policy agenda. They think they can approach the Republican Party as an essentially conservative institution. The conservative movement, which is different from the Republican Party, has thought this way too for a long time and so has had a possessive approach rather than a persuasive approach to Republican voters. And there have been people, and I've been one of them for about 10 years now, arguing that this is false, that especially the evidence of presidential election should let us see that that's false. In other words, that the party that has nominated Bob Dole and George W. Bush and John McCain and Mitt Romney is not, in fact, an intensely conservative party, but is a party that is a coalition in which conservatives are one very important group that has to persuade the rest by showing them why what it offers should be of interest to them. But the party hasn't done nearly enough of that and instead has let itself fall into becoming a vehicle for a very specific and, I think, in some important respects, anachronistic agenda that came about by applying conservative principles to very specific problems in the late 1970s, but that's not updated its understanding of the problems. And what's happened is the the agenda has grown further and further from the actual problems that people face. And it has been time for a while to apply those, I think, enduring principles to a modernized understanding of the country's situation and problems. That's what some younger conservatives have tried to do. Some of the people that have been called reform conservatives have tried to do others too. But for the most part, the party has not done that. And the politicians have not seen that as in their interests. And so there really has been a growing distance between the Republican political class and the Republican electorate. 
And Trump, in a lot of ways, has shown that. He paid no attention to all those litmus tests that all the politicians thought they had to meet, really not so much out of a desire to show that they aren't valid. I think he he literally wasn't even aware of them. And so he instead made a case that spoke to some of the anxieties that people had. I think he offered no solutions to those problems, but he at least articulated some of them as some people understood them. And the response of a lot of the political class best embodied really by Ted Cruz, who lasted longest against Trump, was basically to go around saying, look, he's not a conservative. He's not your guy. And voters in state after state responded saying, yeah, he's not a conservative. What else do you have? I think the party's got to learn a lesson from that about what it is, which is a a political coalition, even if it's an ideological coalition, and, and so not a kind of transactional coalition that has to offer goods and benefits to this group and that group to get them all in the tent. It has to speak to the concerns of people who are not just conservatives to begin with. That means it can't really go around talking about conservatism as though it were a magic word, talking about Ronald Reagan again and again. It has to tell the country what that means. And I think conservatives are badly out of practice at explaining themselves, at explaining why they believe what they believe and why that should interest other people, why it would be of benefit in people's lives. So let me try a theory that I don't think is contradictory to that, but it but is a little bit different and see what you think of it. I've been watching the conversation over Trump, been watching what's been going on with Brexit and assorted other collapses in, in established institutions. And something I keep seeing happen, which I think I see a little bit in that answer, but, but not as, as sharply as you do in other places, is a desire to transmute the pretty clear message of the electorate into an anxiety that is more technocratic, that can be filled with more of the solutions that say I, as a somewhat technocratic policy-oriented guy, prefer. Mm -hmm. And one thing about Trump that, that I hear often is a real effort to take his message and make it about economic anxiety. My friend Brian Boitler, the New Republic has this joke where he will continuously, he'll quote things that people have called economic anxiety and just put racism in. Uh -huh. And you don't have to go that far. But there has been a real, I think, clear message from Trump that says people are worried about, I am worried about immigrants, right. about Muslims, about disorder. And then I think that there are a bunch of folks who, not because they're conservatives, but in some ways because they have more cosmopolitan elite cultural beliefs, who do not want to really have that conversation. And more so than I think Trump has had an agenda that spoke to people, I think he's been willing to unearth issues that both conservative and liberal elites prefer to not have be the issue and that they continuously want to turn into, let's have another conversation about tax policy. Yeah. I agree with that in part. I think that to look at Trump as fundamentally expressing economic anxieties surely is a mistake. In fact, I think that Trump himself actually views these things as more economic than the voters who support him do. Trump talks a lot about trade. Mm -hmm. His voters actually don't seem to care that much about trade. They're much more impressed with the Muslim ban. They're much more impressed with the concern about immigration. If you look at sort of what unifies people who voted for Trump early on, before you could say, well, it's either him or Hillary, but people who actually chose Trump over other options, I think that these more kind of sociocultural things had a lot more to do with his appeal than anything economic that he said. And the economic things he said were never very coherent. They, were, they never spoke in any detailed way to problems people might face. So I agree with that. But 
it does seem to me that there's a difference between saying that these are real problems and they could have constructive solutions and saying these are economic problems. Mm -hmm. So that I think you would find, if you look at what some of the kind of younger conservatives said, some of the reform types that, that I've hung out with for the last 10 years have talked about, we've talked a lot about immigration. We've talked a lot about some concerns that are much more cultural than they are economic. I would say that we are fundamentally social conservatives before we are economic conservatives. And so in that sense, it does seem to me that some, only some, of the kinds of anxieties and concerns that we see channeled now in the Trump phenomenon are things that we do think could be addressed by a different approach to public policy. But there's no question that everyone in politics wants to take what voters seem to be saying and understand it as what I want. I would never claim to be immune to that. I'm certainly not. And it's what politicians do, right? That's actually kind of what it means to channel public concerns is to try to turn them in a direction to which politics would have something to say, to understand the concerns voters are raising as a question to which there could be an answer within our system of government. And that always means distorting those concerns somewhat. I think there's no way around that. But it does seem to me that politics has more to speak to than simply economic policy. And that part of what you see around the world, part of what you see in Brexit, part of what you see in European politics, part of what you see in our politics now, is a resurgence of a kind of counter-cosmopolitanism. So you can understand that as a reaction against globalism or trade. You can understand it as a kind of cultural reaction against immigration and diversity. There are dark sides to it and there are constructive facets to it. But it does seem to me that it is a kind of counter-cosmopolitanism to which conservatives have something to say. It's not that people are asking for us, so here we are. That's, that's not what's going on. What conservatives have to offer is A, more than what Republican politicians have been saying in the last decade or two, and would speak to some of these concerns in ways that are, I think, somewhat coherent. Certainly, the left has something to offer to these concerns, too. What worries me, and really the essence of the book I've just published, is that neither the left nor the right is actually trying to do this very well at this point. Both of them are trying to ignore some key realities of 21st century life, and to have an argument about whether we should go back to the high point of late 20th century conservatism or late 20th century liberalism, whether we should relive the late 1960s or the early 1980s, neither of those is an option. And voters, even when they're attracted to one of these, understand, it seems to me, that those are not real options and that our politics is not speaking to the kinds of challenges they're really facing. I think there's a very plausible left-right politics of 21st century America, but it's not the politics we have. Let's talk a bit about that nostalgia argument, because on the one hand, Donald Trump is not the candidate called for by your book. On the other hand, you could barely get a better object lesson yeah. for your book than a guy who runs around saying, make America great again. Yeah. And it is, I've also said the again in that slogan is so brilliant. Make America great, I think you could easily forget about. Make America great again. It's like in the beer commercial when the guy says, I don't usually drink beer, but right. the, like the whole thing works because of that little bit. But tell me why you think that the two parties are so gripped by nostalgia because 
having read your argument on this, I'm conflicted on it. I'm not I'm not sure that I'm persuaded, or at least I'm not sure I am clear on what a politics that did not use the past as a framework for thinking about the future would look like. Yeah. So I, I'm certainly not arguing for a politics that doesn't use the past as a framework for thinking about the future. I'm a conservative, so I'm even more inclined than most to use the past as a reference. But I think looking to the past for lessons is not the same as nostalgia. And part of what we're seeing in our politics now is a sense that we had the answer. We had all the answers at some point, some favorite point in people's own lifetimes that they can recall and think back to. And we gave up on it. And we gave up on it because the other party got in the way, basically. That's what both parties say to voters now. I think Hillary Clinton, in the interview that you did with her, literally said this. We were on the right track and we lost our way. Uh, about the 90s. About the 90s, yeah. And, you know, she kind of has to say that about the 90s. A lot of liberal economic rhetoric now says that about the 70s or the pre-70s and thinks that we lost our way with a kind of resurgence of excessively market-oriented economics in the in the mid and late 70s. Conservatives say this about everything that happened after 1989 and especially tend to say it now, of course, about the Obama years. I think a lot of what's at work there is a particular kind of overwhelming baby boomer nostalgia that has come to dominate our understanding of relatively recent American history in a way that makes it hard for us to actually learn lessons from the past, which I do think we need to learn. It's a nostalgia that looks at mid-century America, at the decades after World War II, as the norm, as the, in a sense, the ideal, but also the picture of what America ought to be. And that in various ways, and it's different sometimes for left and right, of course, tries to think about why we lost our way from that great high point and how we can get back. On the left, people tend to think about this in economic terms. And so you look to the post-war decades, to the 50s and 60s in particular, as a time of an economy that worked for workers, where people had a lot of opportunity regardless of their skill level. Unions were very strong. The government was very active and involved in ways that seemed to be quite effective. People had a lot of faith and confidence in government. And you had this kind of corporatism where large corporations working together with a powerful labor movement and a powerful government seem to be managing things. On the right, people talk about the culture of that period, strong families, a kind of traditionalist consensus, a real peak, probably the peak of American history in church attendance, very low divorce rates, and although they say it less often, very low immigration in those years as well. And in a sense, a lot of our politics now is about how do we lose our way from that and how do we get back to it? I think what's important to see about it is, first of all, that that time was very unusual in American life. The country was not like that before and has not been like that since. But also that that time was when a lot of the baby boomers who are still our leaders, remember we're going into an election here with two 70-year-old presidential candidates, define their understanding of what America is. Part of what I try to do at the beginning of the book is to think about why it is that we have the view of the last half century and more that we do in America by looking at it through the lens of the average baby boomer. A person born in 1950, let's say, would have looked at the 50s through the eyes of a child and so has a, a, a sense of that time as simple, as things working, as a lot of, of opportunity and possibility, would have looked at the 60s through the eyes of a teenager, idealistic. Again, everything seemed possible. The culture was fantastic looked at the 70s through the eyes of a person just entering the adult world. And so really an introduction of a kind of anxiety and cynicism. Maybe things aren't going to work out. In the 80s, things settle down some. You begin to come into your own. You're worried about the mortgage more than you're worried about changing the world. 
By the 90s, it is your world, and things seem just right, and there's an enormous confidence. But in this century, you begin to see over the hill a little bit and to worry about how things have changed. You don't quite recognize your country anymore. This is how somebody born in 1950 would have looked at America in each of the last seven decades. And it's also, I think, how our entire country, except maybe the youngest Americans, look at America in the last seven decades. We've given over ownership of our own sense of ourselves to that generation that's been so dominant in our culture. And, you know, their descriptions are not wrong exactly, but they're quite incomplete. And a lot of the book is about what we are missing by having allowed them to control our sense of our understanding of ourselves to the degree we have. So one thing there, though, is that both parties, I think, even if they have some nostalgia, are also that is mixed with a very powerful anti-nostalgia, a very powerful loathing for key facets of those eras. Yeah. So I think a lot of the narrative you just told is a narrative of primarily white men, I want to say. Sure. Women in even much of this time were very discriminated in the workforce. African-Americans, obviously, very much so. Gay Americans, very much so. Part of what has become very dominant on the left and, and, and present and pervasive in a way that wasn't even true in the 90s, right? The the era in which Bill Clinton signed Don't Ask, Don't Tell is an extraordinarily right. different era in Democratic Party yep. politics, has been a real distaste, a real anger at, in, in some ways, how America was built, right? That, that period that many people think of as formative yep. has come to have a different history attached to it. And at the same time, I think that conservatives look back on the economics of much of that period as genuinely deeply misguided. Yeah. Regulatory in ways things aren't now. The government was confident in ways that it isn't now. Even if things are sometimes larger now, there is much more respect for markets and so forth. And so those things mix, I think, in, in interesting ways. I think you're right to say that there is nostalgia, but it's certainly not an uncomplicated nostalgia. If you listen to when I was reporting on, on Clinton, I was at one of her big economic speeches and I noticed the line she's been trying out is that she wants a full employment and full opportunity economy. And with the big idea there being Democrats have always wanted a full employment economy. But it's actually quite recent that opportunity for traditionally marginalized groups has become yeah. as central a priority as it is. So how do you how do you square that a bit? Yeah, well, I certainly try to think through that in the sort of first half of the book. And, and all nostalgia is selective nostalgia. It would have to be. And the nostalgia of the left and right are selective in quite different ways so that in a sense, they're, they're so selective in these different ways that they prevent us from seeing what are really two sides of the same coin. So conservatives are nostalgic for the culture of mid-century America and are very happy with how things have changed, generally speaking, in economic terms. We tend to love the dynamism of the modern economy, but we don't love the chaos of modern culture, to put it in the terms we would put it in. I think liberals are roughly the other way. They very much miss the structure and order and security of the mid-century economy, the stability for workers, the the breadth of opportunity. But liberals are very happy about what's happened to the culture over this period. It's much more diverse. It's much more open and dynamic. It's much more accepting of traditionally mistreated groups. There's much more immigration. We're a more diverse society. The trouble is that these are two sides of the same coin. They're both – what's happened over that time would best be described, I think, as a kind of liberalization or f- a fragmentation or fracture of a very cohesive and consolidated version of America. And that liberalization has happened both in the culture and in the economy. 
in the culture, it has meant that our society is more open, is more diverse. At the same time, if you want to look at the dark side of it, there is less structure, there is less social order. Families are more broken than they used to be, communities too. That can't be separated from the greater market orientation of the economy. It's in part a function of it. It's also driven it in part. And we are wrong to think about one side of liberalization and not the other, or one side of fragmentation and fracture and not the other. I think the hardest thing about living in a basically functional free society is always to see that our problems are the costs we pay for our strengths, that the cost of progress is what creates the challenges we have. That's very hard for everybody in politics to see. And we always think we can have the good and we can do away with the bad. And of course, to some extent, we can do that. When we see the costs of progress, we change our understanding of what progress ought to be, of what it means. We change our priorities some. And so we care more about security to an extent that means that we can be a little less insistent on competition in this area or that area. Or we care more about family structure. And so we're a little less insistent on cultural liberalization in one place or another. But we still never quite acknowledge, and I say we because everybody does this, we never quite acknowledge that the problems we have are the costs of progress. And a politics that recognized that, it's probably too much to hope for. But a politics that was a little more cognizant of that, not only would be a more constructive politics, it would be less depressed than the politics we have now. I think today... We are much too down on contemporary America. We see only problems. And the fact is, on the whole, there's pretty much nowhere you'd rather be and really no time you'd rather be living in. That is not the impression you'd get from listening to American politics now. I think nostalgia has a lot to do with that. I think the bewilderment of some of the of some older voters at the country they're living in has a lot to do with that. But the unwillingness to see that the dark side is the price you pay for the light side is always a is always a problem. One thing that I think is difficult about drawing out that dark side is there are it is contested what the problems of the progress really are, right? So you you so, brought up dissolution of families. And there are dimensions of dissolution of families I think everybody agrees are bad, right? Yeah. The the number of kids growing up poor because they're in the single parent households right. and, you know. On the other hand, there are aspects of this that are good. There is, I mean, there is a real argument, particularly in, in social conservative circles, about no-fault divorce, right? And whether that was actually a good thing. It made it much right. easier to dissolve a family. On the other hand, many people see that as an excellent thing. Uh, my parents are divorced. Uh, I, don't, I don't think it was a bad thing. Well, and for, for, for women right. in marriages that are abusive... It's Absolutely. not only not been a bad thing, it's, it's been, been very an important. incredible social advance. Absolutely. But I think that's one of the issues here, right? I think when we operate at the level of abstraction, right, when we just say social progress comes along with cost, everybody nods their head, right? right? That's actually an easy thing to say. When you begin to say, well, which ones are the problems right. and which ones are actually the benefit, then things get a lot harder. I agree with that. But I think that, I mean, in a sense, that's what I'm saying, right? S seeing that as the debates we have, seeing that as what's underlying the arguments we have would be very different than looking at our politics as fundamentally a debate between good and evil, right? In a sense, the politics of a democracy like ours, and really especially American politics, which have always been fought more or less between the 40-yard lines. There are real differences, ideological differences between left and right. But there are differences about where we draw the lines between the good and the bad. And I think understanding our politics that way would allow us to have a more constructive and functional politics. But there's no question that a lot of the debates we have are about whether a social or economic phenomena 
is the progress or the price. So this is, I think, related to an interesting tick in in political argument. Somebody in the blog world used to have a good name for this, and I've since forgot it. But there is an unwillingness to say that something you believe is bad might have a good effect. Yeah. If you don't like it, it has to also be ineffective. The immigration debate, I think, is a, is a good example of this in some ways. You see very few people who will just say, immigration is good for the economy, but I oppose it because culturally I think it's a bad right. thing. The torture debate is also an example of this, and I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on the numbers, but people who don't like torture tend to believe it is ineffective and people who do like torture yeah. tend to believe it is effective at getting information. But you rarely see people just say, listen, I think it is effective, but I still just think it is so morally wrong. We're not, yeah. we're not going to go in that direction. And I do think that is a particularly tough thing in American politics to simply be able to say, listen, I oppose this even if there's evidence that it succeeds in its intended goal. And the reason I think that is often very difficult is that one thing that we tend to do is flatten debates into debates of efficiency. We are very comfortable debating whether or not something works and not very comfortable debating its fundamental morality. Mm -hmm. You see this in a lot of areas in life. Right, right now, we just saw the Supreme Court case around abortion where it was clearly laws meant to curb the overall numbers of right. abortions in Texas were being proposed as an effort to improve women's health. And the Supreme Court ultimately just said, that's ridiculous. And that feels to me like where a lot of these arguments get caught up. The values argument is hard to have. It's fuzzy to have. And there's no real way to resolve it. So things get transmuted into these much more technical wonkish arguments, you know, where at least we can pretend to ourselves, oh, if we could only convince everyone yeah. that it did help the economy or it did help this group, then it would be OK. I, you know, I think that's right. In a, in a sense, it runs very deep in liberal politics and classical liberal politics, because we want to say that what it means to be a free society is that people can believe what they want about moral issues and can have a debate about governing questions that are about how to create the right environment for people to have the freedom to do what they choose. That means that a lot of our governing questions only make sense to us or only seem legitimate to us when there are questions about utilitarian matters, when there are questions about what works and what's efficient. But of course, we can't actually have a society that doesn't argue with itself about moral questions, and we shouldn't. And so what we do is sneak in those debates as arguments about efficiency and cost and benefit. Sometimes those are real arguments, and so, you know, some of the arguments we have just are both of these things. They're, they're debates about philosophical differences that have economic facets, and so it makes sense to think of them as uh, also economic debates. Some of them are not like that. And, you know, when we try to sneak them through, we end up not arguing about what we're actually debating. To where you started the question, it is very hard for anybody to say, I want something, but I know it has costs. It is very hard for anybody to say that. And, and I actually find in Washington, the people who are more inclined to say that, uh, both sides of our politics, are people who've spent some time in government and especially in the executive branch and have had to make decisions where it's just perfectly obvious that there are huge costs to what you're doing, but that there is a strong overriding reason that makes it necessary for you to do that. That kind of humbling experience about political choices, where you have to be drawn out of the abstract and into a real situation where the, the costs are right there. Sometimes they're actually costs, financial costs. Sometimes you just know that there's going to be a downside to what you have to do because you, you aren't presented with, uh, with choices to make that don't have downsides. 
And that tends to humble the way people talk about political choices and political options. But it's very hard. I mean, no one wants to approach the public saying, here's what I want you to do, but I realize it's going to have all these terrible after effects too. You worked in the Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration. Yeah, I you- worked uh, in HHS uh, in the first term, and, uh, and I was the health staffer at the White House Domestic Policy Council in the second term. And I want to talk about that latter experience when you yeah. worked on the stem cell issue, uh-huh. because I think people have forgotten, actually, what a big deal that was in that era. But I think it's a really good example of a debate that cut across a lot of the lines we're talking about here, a debate that mixed issues of values with issues of efficiency, a debate that turn modernism and uh, technology against sort of some of our more traditional understandings. I'd like you to tell the story a bit of how you got involved in that debate and what you learned from the experience. Well, I got involved in a very bizarre and random way. Um, I, before that, before uh, working in government, I was a, uh, a graduate student at the University of Chicago getting a PhD. And one of my teachers there was Leon Cass, who is really a philosopher, but was very involved in bioethics. And when George W. Bush was elected, he had fairly quickly to deal with this stem cell question, the question of whether the federal government should be, whether the National Institutes of Health should fund research that involves the destruction of embryos to derive their stem cells. And President Clinton at first had said yes, and then it backed down a little bit when cloning became an issue and basically left the question open for his successor. And George W. Bush ended up arriving with help from Leon Cass, among others, at a solution to it that he saw, I think, rightly, but not everybody thought so, as a kind of Solomonic compromise that said the federal government will fund research on existing lines of embryonic stem cells, lines that had been created by destroying embryos, but won't fund research that involves new destruction of embryos for research. The objection is Can straightforward. Can you say a minute about what that means? Because I don't feel like I fully understand the, yeah. the lines that have been. What is a line in this so, context? Uh, basically, embryonic stem cells exist in lines that can, be, that can be sustained over time. They recreate themselves. That's, in fact, what's so impressive about them. And so when you destroy an embryo and remove the cells from its nucleus, the embryonic stem cells that are so hyper-capable, it can become all different kinds of cells in the body, you can also keep those cells in a state that allows them to keep reproducing. And so once you've created a line of cells by destroying an embryo, that line persists. It continues to exist basically for as long as you want. And so when President Bush faced the decision he faced, there was a certain number of lines that turned out to be in the neighborhood of 40 of them that had been created in the previous few years. It was very new science. that hadn't been around for very long, but those lines existed. And the idea was scientists can use those existing lines with federal money to do research on embryonic stem cells, but we would not use federal money to fund the destruction of embryos in the future. And so again, in a sense, a Solomonic compromise because Bush didn't say no, you can't do embryonic stem cell research with NIH grants. But he didn't say, yes, you can use federal money to destroy embryos in the future. A lot of researchers were very unhappy with this as a practical matter because they'd created these lines not thinking this was all they were ever going to have. New techniques were always emerging. It was a very new science. And so they thought that they ought to have the ability to do more of this in the future. Some people in the pro-life world were unhappy about it because it seemed to be affirming the past destruction of these embryos and saying, in a sense, there was value to be had from, from that past destruction. And President Bush was kind of happy to be in the middle there and have both sides somewhat unhappy with him, but also seeing some good in what he did. He thought more or less that meant he had found the right kind of compromise. 
when he announced that decision in August of 2001, he also created an advisory body that would be housed in HHS and advise his administration both on how that policy was working, first and foremost, and on other bioethical issues. And he asked Cass, who was a professor at the University of Chicago, to head that that advisory body. It was a kind of full-time Washington job. And because I'd worked in Washington before, I'd been a congressional staffer. I'd worked for Newt Gingrich in the Speaker's office and for the House Budget Committee and was now his graduate student. Leon Cass asked me to come and work for him at that commission, and I became in time the chief of staff of, of the commission. When I then moved to the White House in 2004, at the end of 2004, just after the election, the portfolio I had was a, was a fairly broad healthcare portfolio, but it also involved these issues, the stem cell debate, but also more generally the, the abortion question, what they called culture of life issues. And so I remained very involved in those debates. And they were, as you say, incredibly intense debates. It's, it's almost odd to us now, looking back at it, to think about how intense those debates were and how prominent they were in the politics of that decade. I think, by the way, that a lot of that had to do with questions that weren't actually about stem cell research, that were about funding for biomedical science in general, that had to do with the aftermath of the doubling of the NIH budget between 98 and 2003. There was incredible, intense unhappiness in the scientific community with what followed in the wake of that doubling. And a lot of that was kind of poured into the stem cell issue because it was a very hard argument for scientists to make. The budgets had just been doubled. And yet now they were extremely unhappy with the slowdown that followed it. I think a lot of the aggravation and anxiety that was expressed in the stem cell debate actually had to do with that larger question of the role of the federal government in funding biomedical research. And researchers, frankly, allowed themselves to get dragged into making all kinds of assertions and statements about the potential of the science that I think they didn't really want to make and were not happy to see being made in politics. And looking back on that time now... I think a lot of people in the medical research world, and especially in cell science, are very unhappy with how their community functioned in that process. And, you know, it it really turns out that a lot of those claims were not well-founded, have not panned out. And now the Obama administration is willing to fund embryonic stem cell research, but there's not a lot of it going on. the, The cell science has moved in a different direction. Part of that began to happen because of a, of a kind of second compromise that uh, the Bush administration very much pushed, and I was in the middle of that, really in the second term, trying to find different ways of creating these what they called pluripotent stem cells, cells that could become any cell of the body. And the White House was very unusually involved in pushing the NIH to fund that kind of research. I think it's panned out reasonably well, but there's a lot, there's a big story to be told about the place of the federal government in funding medical research that could be told around those two facets of the stem cell debate. What were you doing? Well, so I was, I was a policy staffer in the White House, which means that, I mean, in a sense, what the policy staff does, the domestic policy staff in the White House is very small, and its job is essentially to communicate information in both directions, to structure the president's decision process. When a decision reaches the level of the White House, it's generally a very difficult decision or else it would have been made at lower levels. And the president needs to be informed by the bureaucracy that sits under him, by outside experts, and needs to have that decision formed into a clear yes or no question or here are four options question. And that's the job of people at the level that I was, a kind of mid-level policy staffer at the White House. And also to communicate back, to communicate the president's decisions to the bureaucracy, to outsiders, and see to it that to the extent possible they're carried out. 
What I was doing in that process was acting as a kind of conduit between the president and the NIH on the one hand and the president and some of the scientific community on the other hand. And so I was in the middle of what was an extremely contentious moment. And I would say I came to think by 2005-06 that a lot of that had to do with a bipartisan mistake in the way that the increase of the National Institutes of Health budget had taken place. At the end of the Clinton years and at the beginning of the Bush years, the budget, as I said, was doubled over five years and then returned to normal growth levels of about 2 or 3% a year. And that was done with good intentions. It was actually thought of as a kind of bipartisan success. Newt Gingrich supported it very much, as did a lot of Democrats. President Clinton loved it. President Bush ran on continuing it. What ended up happening was because the NIH basically supports academic institutions, doubling the budget over five years meant that many, many more graduate students were dragged into, allowed into biomedical research. And then as soon as their training was done, the funding ended. And the the American medical research community found itself in a very bizarre position so that at the beginning of 2005, I found myself getting a lot of meeting requests from big research institutions. People would come in and say that they were under enormous funding pressure. They had these huge problems. My first reaction to them was to think these people are just unbelievably spoiled. We've just doubled their budget. And I started going into these meetings. I would ask the NIH examiner at the Office of Management and Budget to give me a chart of the funding of the specific labs of the people that I was about to meet with. And when they started complaining, I would pull out a chart and I would say, you know, your budget's just gone up by 80%. Why are you here? And this made the kind of university lobbyists very nervous, but the scientists were not phased by it, and they gave me an answer. And over time, I came to realize that the answer was correct, that they were right and I'd been wrong, and that the way the budget had been doubled was just perfectly designed to frustrate the academic process by which American biomedical research happens and grows. And I think there are a lot of lessons in that for how we fund science. I think there are a lot of lessons in that for the kind of... Wait, uh, why was it perfectly designed to frustrate that? So the, the budget was doubled over five years. Huge, huge growth. The, so let's say budget is $10. It goes up to $20. Right. At so, the end, does it go back down to 10 or does No, it, start, it doesn't go back okay. down, but it starts growing more slowly. It starts yeah. growing normally in the way that the federal budget grows. So there was growth of, of almost 20% a year for five mm-hmm. years and then growth of 3% a year after that. And so over those five years, institutions made investments. They got a lot more money. It was generally the same institutions. The growth was so fast that we weren't creating new research institutions, but those top 20 research universities were getting much more money than they had. And so they had money. They could bring in new graduate students. They could start new labs. They could build new lines of research. And then five years into it, just as the first graduate students were starting to leave and build their own careers the growth slowed down dramatically. And these same institutions began to need all the money they were getting just to sustain the growth they'd been through. The new graduate students found themselves competing with their own mentors for grants. They were losing the competition. And everybody was very frustrated. I think if the growth had been 5% a year for 10 years, for 15 years, it would have been much more manageable and much more effective. But I really, I would argue that in the first 10 years that followed that, from about 05 until just now, on the whole, the doubling of the NIH budget probably hurt medical research in America more than it helped it. We're now at a place where I think it's been digested, and it certainly is doing more uh, good than harm. And of course, on the whole, there's more research going on. There's more opportunities for breakthroughs and for advances. But 
as a research enterprise, as an academic enterprise, American biomedical research was very badly hurt by the structure, by the design of, of that increase. And nobody saw it. Nobody on any side saw it coming. There were people who opposed the doubling because they didn't want to spend the money. But there was really no one who made the argument that it should go slower. And I think we've learned that lesson, and, and now that would happen. What was George W. Bush like to work for? I liked him a lot. George W. Bush was temperamentally an executive. He understood the job as fundamentally an executive job. Not all presidents do. I think some presidents think of the presidency as of the core purpose of it as advancing a legislative agenda. And that's not false. Uh, that is a purpose of it. President Bush understood the purpose of it as, as a kind of executive job, as managing, as making decisions in a crisis, and as giving direction to the federal government more than advancing a specific legislative agenda. He tried to do that too, of course, but at the core, he was an executive. He was very good at making decisions. He was also very good at motivating the people who worked for him. You know, he had a kind of knack for it. He liked politics much more than President Obama does. Maybe not as much as Bill Clinton liked politics, but... Nobody likes politics yeah. as much as Bill Clinton likes politics. But he enjoyed it. He liked <laughs> meeting people. He liked hearing what they thought. In a room full of people at, in a meeting, he knew who was too arrogant and who was nervous, and he would make the one guy feel terrible, and he would make the other guy feel better. It takes a real skill to do that. It's a kind of extroversion that in the policy world that I work in is just, a, you know, we're all introverts. I enjoyed working for him and, and, and left very impressed with him. He governed at a difficult time and, you know, was faced with a lot of difficult choices. I would say what I walked away with most was that you just have to be crazy to want to be president of the United States. It is an awful job. No easy decisions ever reach you. Otherwise, they wouldn't get to you. They wouldn't waste your time. Every choice you have to make is a lose-lose choice. You're faced with people who know a lot more than you do about the issue, and they disagree with one another, and your job is to decide who's right. And whatever you do, you know, roughly half the country is going to be very unhappy with you. I'm glad there are people who are willing to do it, but boy, it is an awful job. Something that I really enjoy in your writing is that it is grounded in a experience with being in the executive branch. I think a lot of people don't have, even people who worked in the executive branch, I think often don't have it. So what did being there make you second guess about punditry, about the way we look at decisions made at the White House? What what did you come out of there and begin reading and think, no, like this is just, this is just thin, this just isn't right? Quite a lot, I think. Fundamentally, I think it makes you second guess confidence. I would say there's a way of thinking about about policy judgments that says there's a right choice and a wrong choice. Sometimes you make the right one, sometimes you make the wrong one, but that's essentially what you're facing. I think a lot of policy judgments that, especially those that reach the president, but also those that are made at lower levels and those that are made in Congress, involve options that are likely to be, all of them, largely wrong. And you end up with a kind of, you end up with a kind of epistemological modesty. It's very hard to do these things. The, the, the challenges, the things we expect of the federal government are very difficult. And I lost entirely the ability to believe in, in conspiracy theories, the ability to believe that the people in power are thinking four steps ahead and playing some kind of chess game. That is not what is happening at the White House ever. What's happening is people are drinking out of a fire hose and trying desperately not to screw up so badly that they end up on the front pages. They also have an agenda. They're trying to achieve something they believe to be deeply good for the country. But for the most part, there's a lot of damage control. There's a lot of trying to keep up with events. 
And so when someone explains something that, the, the, that any administration has done with this kind of complex plan about how four steps ahead they're going to transform the country, I am very skeptical of that. It's not just working at the White House that did that for me. I, working on Capitol Hill does too. I, I'll never forget, I, I worked for Newt Gingrich during the Clinton impeachment, and I would write into work on the Metro and read in the newspaper what the Republican leaders were planning to do and how they were going to drive the process. And then I would get to the office, and nobody had any idea what was going to happen next. There was never a plan. When there was a plan, it lasted exactly five minutes, and the thing just happened. And I was left with the sense that that kind of what's the architecture, what's the long-term strategy, while it can be useful, and certainly people try to have a long-term strategy, it's probably not a good way to understand day-to-day politics. It almost never really happens that way. What was Newt Gingrich like to work for? Well, so I was a very junior staffer uh, working for Gingrich. I didn't spend a ton of time with him. I was an assistant to his legislative director. I basically did policy research. I worked for Gingrich after working for the House Budget Committee when John Kasich was chairman. And and so I had a very unusual experience of seeing working for Newt Gingrich as a kind of relief because Kasich was very erratic. He was always hyper-confident but also indecisive at the same time. And that just made it very, very hard to to work for the committee. Gingrich... What I liked about Gingrich as a very junior staffer is is also what was probably one of his biggest problems. He listened to everybody. He listened to everybody, and he took advice really seriously. And so he had a lot of trouble making decisions, and everything took a very long time. He would go around in a staff meeting, and he would ask everybody what they thought. And, you know, I was 22 years old. He would ask me what I thought, and he would have something to say about it, would think about it. I thought it was wonderful. In retrospect, it was probably a huge waste of time. And I think Gingrich was indecisive largely for that reason, that he thought everybody had something to offer and he really wanted to think about every question from every angle. Now, Gingrich was also a sort of bizarrely intellectual politician. I wouldn't say he was all that well-suited to being Speaker of the House. But, you know, again, that intellectualism is something that appealed to me, so I enjoyed working for Newt Gingrich. How do you merge the epistemological humility that you learn working in government with the actual work of policymaking and particularly the actual work of ambitious policymaking. Yeah. You can take an example on the left or the right here, but I don't think I've worked, I don't think I've spoken with anybody who, who's worked in government who hasn't had some version of your experience there. The idea that folks there are not omniscient, things are very complicated, working through bureaucracy is very difficult, it colors everything. And then at the same time, the country does have big problems and people come up with big solutions to those problems. The Hillary Clinton campaign has many very big ideas. You're a supporter of the Ryan budget plan, which would simultaneously reshape a very large number of our most significant and complex social programs simultaneously. So how do you hold those competing tendencies together? So for me, part of it has to do with really with why I'm a conservative, which is I I tend to look for policy mechanisms that enable a process that lets people's choices drive change more than one that enables a process that lets expert knowledge drive change. Now, these lines are never perfect. Both of those are just caricatures, more or less. But I would say that one important difference between the way that people on the right and on the left tend to think about policy does have to do with whether you're empowering a kind of bottom-up process or whether you believe you have a reasonably workable solution and you want to implement it and see what happens. And so 
I think it's a little easier when what you're trying to do, when you're, the change you're trying to implement is to put in place a system that would learn from its own mistakes and that would learn from people's judgments as it goes. But there's no question that part of the answer is also that you ignore your doubts, and that's a dangerous thing. And so you do come to believe that you have a better answer than what's there now, and fully recognizing that it's likely to be wrong in some important respects and maybe trying to design it in ways that wouldn't fail too badly when they fail, uh, you can never do that perfectly. And a lot of what policymakers do is put in place programs that would require more confidence than they actually have. I think living with that recognition and thinking about public policy with that in mind helps, but it doesn't avoid the problem. And so we do make big mistakes. The thing that worries me a lot on that front is that, look, I've been running Vox for two years and a couple months. And in that time, what we have learned and what we've changed based on those learnings is dramatic. And Vox is not the most complicated project in the world. It is so difficult now because of how polarized we are about big legislation that passes to revisit and update things that the government is already doing. Obamacare is one very big example of this, but you can really go to anything. It's very difficult to open up social security and make small changes to benefit packages just to tweak things to make them make more sense. It's very difficult to go into the way the different agencies run their programs. I mean, the transportation department is difficult. It's difficult to go in there and try to figure out what's going on and and look again at how we're doing grants. And somehow revisiting that is not, or or somehow trying to think through the process by which we we revisit things like that, it's not really on anybody's agenda, but it feels to me very important. It feels to me, honestly, a little bit more significant sometimes than which kind of policy we choose, because we seem to have really, whether we've lost it, whether we ever had it, I think is an open question. I do know a lot of folks who argue that we did more technical fix packages 30 years ago than we do today. But... It does not seem to be recognized as a problem in the way that it feels to me like it needs to be. I I do think there's a lot of truth to that. I I also think part of the problem is that some of the challenges we're dealing with, some of the governing failures we're dealing with, have to do with programs that were enacted in a very unusual time in American politics when there was a very broad consensus, basically in the wake of the 1964 election election. The Democrats had the presidency with a huge mandate, the biggest since the early 19th century, and they had super majorities in both houses for a brief time. But they used that time to enact programs, especially our large health care entitlements, that our system normally would not have been able to enact. And that means that once our politics got back to normal, it's been very difficult to change those programs because you're never going to have the same majority on either side for either people who want to build on that or people who want to dramatically alter that. One structural change in the way Congress works that would make some difference on this front is actually requiring programs to be authorized before they can be appropriated, which is a very dull and boring thing to talk about. But I think it's enormously important. Technically, that's required, right? But it never actually happens. Explain what you mean by that, because I don't think people are going to pick up on that. Congress basically creates public programs in two steps. It authorizes them. That is, it, it creates the program, sets up the rules, what it's supposed to do, creates a new office or eliminates old ones. And then it actually funds that activity through appropriations bills that are passed each year and that provide specific amounts of money for those institutions. The authorizations of significant programs are always time limited. Five or 10 years is the norm. 
And after five or 10 years, Congress is supposed to take another look at that program and go through a process that almost inevitably would involve significant changes. Because if you're going to reauthorize the National Institutes of Health, you're going to look at how it's doing. And you're going to ask the staff whether something should change. You're going to ask outside experts whether something should change. You're going to listen to the political system if it's a controversial program that people have opinions about. But those reauthorizations just don't happen. Congress at the moment, really, really for the last 20 years, I would say, is just not functional enough to enable that to happen. And so and the NIH is an example I happen to know a lot about. The NIH went more than 20 years without a reauthorization. And there was no question that there was a lot of duplication, that there was a lot of uh, crazy overhead. This is a, an institution that's supposed to keep up with changing biomedical science, and it had failed to do that completely. And the reauthorization didn't happen for a variety of reasons, but some of it has to do with the kinds of pressures you're talking about, which is you're a member of Congress who wants to change how the institution works. There aren't a lot of people out there in the public and the electorate who care about that or know anything about it. There are an awful lot of people in the research world who live off the current program and don't want to hear about it changing. And so the easy thing to do is just leave it alone and try to make changes at the margins. I think requiring Congress to actually authorize programs before they can be funded would make a difference. And that's actually part of what the House Republicans have just proposed to do. I think there's a lot of Democratic support for that, too. The two parties think differently about what that would mean, but it would make sense to try and see who's right. But generally speaking, I, I quite agree. And, and it's why I'm, I'm, I'm drawn to policy mechanisms that, that create a system, that create a market, that create a, a venue for decision makers relatively close to the ground to make decisions that matter and make decisions that have an effect on how resources are moved. Because I don't think we're likely to get it right once and for all in a federal program. And so the way we ought to use the resources of the federal government is to enable decisions to be made closer to the ground that allow for change. That's never going to work perfectly either, but it might work a little better. So in terms of the, the broader, how does Congress act? How does it authorize? How does it reauthorize? The issue I have with just putting in play an idea like that is that we have not just created, in terms of how the Constitution set up the government, a system where it is difficult to get things done, but we have crusted onto that a lot of secondary mechanisms to make it very hard to get anything done. And I tend to be drawn to ideas that make it a lot easier for things to happen and also a lot easier for things to unhappen. Something I'll, I'll hear from folks on the left when I talk about something like getting rid of the filibusters. Oh, well, yeah. wouldn't that mean that President you know, Donald Trump and, and a Republican House and Senate could get rid of Medicare? And it would mean that. But my assumption is that programs protected by public opinion will be protected. But also that there needs to be more accountability and more ability for governing majorities to act and then subsequent government majorities to act in, in a different way. And I'm curious where you come down to that. I'm curious if you think that it has become so difficult to act in American politics that the system is bandwidth for doing things like reauthorizations. If you're Mitch McConnell, you're Harry Reid, saying you're going to open into a process like that is saying that you're going to do a whole lot less for the rest of the year. Do we need to have in a government this complex, a, a country this complex, a more, and I use this term advisedly, efficient mm -hmm. legislating <clears throat> so equilibrium. I think it makes sense to have a system where it is difficult to change things. I think that that's built into our constitutional system 
because of a a form of the kind of uh, of the kind of modesty about knowledge and power that we've been talking about, a sense that most new ideas are likely to be bad ideas, and that change should happen after a fairly large coalition has come to the view that it should happen and has held that view for a pretty long time. That said, I think that within that system, there's a lot of room for institutional reform that has not been happening. So the congressional budget process is a good example of this. Congress has changed its fundamental way of budgeting several times in its history, basically when it's come to situations like the one we're in now, where nothing gets done. The basics of what Congress has to do, its first obligation is to appropriate federal funds, you know, the power of the purse that members of Congress likes to talk about. Congress is not exercising that power well, not because of the president and not because of the courts, but because of Congress. Members of Congress don't want to exercise that power well. They've come to dislike the way the budget process works now, and yet they're not talking about changing it. The last time the federal budget process was changed dramatically was in the mid-1970s. Before that, the last time was in the late 1940s, and about the same amount of time has passed. I think we've gone through a kind of generation and a half of the 74 budget process, the 1974 budget process, and we're at a point now where that process does not work. I think a lot about it does not work. That process created the Budget Committee, which I think should not exist and does an enormous amount of harm to Congress's ability to do its work. That process created a kind of 13-bill process for congressional budgeting that I think should be broken apart into much smaller chunks that Congress was always working on. I think it makes sense to combine authorization and appropriation now, especially because there are no earmarks. There's much less pork in the process. It's not clear to me what the Appropriations Committee is really for. But those those kinds of conversations are not happening much in Congress. I do think that we're likely to be entering a time when there will be more institutional reform in Congress, exactly because it isn't working. And it hasn't worked for a long time. And if you think about the way Congress used to pass big bills in the modern era, the last bill that passed that way, where you have a weird bipartisan coalition, committee chairman and ranking members are doing the pushing, and the thing ends with a strange signing ceremony, strange to us in our polarized age, where leaders from both parties are standing behind the president and leaders on both parties are criticizing the bill on the outside. That hasn't happened, I guess, since 2003 with the Medicare Modernization Act. Maybe it hasn't happened since No Child Left Behind. It was a long time ago, and most members of Congress have been elected since then and have never seen Congress function. Uh, we've passed big bills since then, but they've, been, they've passed in ways that even their champions would acknowledge have been dysfunctional. And so... That seems to me to call for pretty fundamental institutional reform, especially the budget process. There's some talk about that, but I think it'll take some time. That kind of reform happens within the constitutional framework, within a framework that slows change, that makes it difficult to make big changes. But that kind of change needs to happen within that structure or else there's no change. And that's certainly not what our constitutional system envisions. Let's say that in this election, Donald Trump loses to Hillary Clinton, say loses by six points, a reasonably significant but normal margin. What do you think happens in the Republican Party after that? Yeah, it's an awfully good question. The only honest answer is I have no idea. I I think that there are a variety of schools of thought about that. Um, If you talk to members of Congress, they, most of them would implicitly say that what happens is a kind of return 
to what they've considered normal, to a kind of pre-Trump, more or less pre-Trump politics. And part of the reason for that is that they live with two Republican parties. They live with one Republican party that below the level of the presidency is the governing party of the country. It's very dominant in, in governorships and state legislative seats at the moment also in Congress. And they have 10,000 elected officials. None of them is Donald Trump. And really, none of them is much like Donald Trump. And they think that party is still there. So if, if this stops at the presidential level, that's the party that comes back. I think that more would change than that. I think that the lessons of this, of this campaign season will sink in over time. I would not pretend to know what they're all going to be. But I think that there would be lessons about uh, what the party offers its own voters, what the party offers the country. An optimistic take on that, from my point of view, would be that there would need to be a kind of modernization of the party's understanding of the country's challenges, that there would be a generational change. There's a huge difference between older Republicans and younger Republicans among the elected officials, I think also among voters. And that kind of generational change could be a good thing. But Let me stop you on that real quick. What do you think is the difference in your experience between older elected Republicans and younger elected Republicans? The core difference has to do with whether your political consciousness was formed in the Reagan era or after. Many Republican politicians, those over 55, 60, but especially even older ones, really live with a kind of Reagan era sense of who the voters are, what the country's like, what the party's for. Younger Republican politicians, and there are now more and more of them, the Speaker of the House is one of them, Paul Ryan, but in the Senate, there's, there, there have been a number of people from Ted Cruz and Mike Lee to Ben Sass and, and Tom Cotton who are quite a bit younger. They're, they're in their early 40s, and they are much more at home in 21st century America. They don't look at the country and, and first and foremost say, I don't recognize my country. They're, this is their country. And they're, for that reason, a somewhat different kind of conservative. They're less inclined to just repeat the policy agenda of the 1980s. They're looking for ways of applying conservative ideas to 21st century problems. Mike Lee is a great example of that. Mike Lee, in some ways, is the most conservative member of Congress and in other ways is the most impressive policy entrepreneur among the Republicans. I think those two things are connected. It's not that being younger means you're less conservative. It means you have a different attitude about what the purpose of politics is and what conservatives might have to offer. The difference is enormous. And it's not just about the politicians. People my age, I'm 39, people my age and younger don't watch Fox News at all, you know, haven't in years, don't live in quite the political culture that seems to be defining this presidential race. And on the whole, are mystified and horrified by what's going on in this presidential race. I, I think it speaks to an older culture. Now, something like that exists on the left. I think there's a big difference on the left, too. It's a different difference, and it's one you'd know better than I would. But it does seem to me that it's happening more on the Republican side among politicians just because Democrats have been in power over the last uh, eight years. And a lot of their talent has been drawn into the executive branch. So you don't yet see it in Congress. There are, there are just more younger Republicans in Congress than younger Democrats. But that'll change over time. I mean, it's interesting that this year, the what is clearly a different consensus that exists among young Democrats yeah. was channeled by Bernie Sanders, who is not himself a young Democrat, yeah. but led a movement that even more so than Obama's challenge to Hillary in 08 was powered by younger voters. Yeah, no, I, I I think the generational difference is huge, and it has to do with something we talked about before that our our self understanding of America is incredibly dominated by baby boomers and by a kind of baby boomer story about America, 
And my generation, the the children rather than the grandchildren of the baby boomers, have just lived under that shadow. I think younger Americans than that, the ones just rising into politics now, are just not going to put up with it and don't see why they should. And the boomers are retiring and are less of a force all the time. I think we're going to see a generational transition now. Now, it's not going to be directly to 18-year-olds. It's actually going to be a transition into that sort of Gen X uh, political generation. But the change will be pretty dramatic, it seems to me. At least the evidence so far suggests to me that it'll be a big difference. What is the most interesting policy idea you've heard on the right and on the left in the last couple of years? Hmm. I think the most interesting thing going on on the left is probably the debate about a guaranteed minimum income. It's not a new idea. And in fact, there have been debates about it several times in our history. I always tell people, if you look at the, I think it's the fall 1969 issue of the public interest was devoted to a debate about a guaranteed minimum income. And it's a very familiar debate. It's the same debate. But circumstances have changed. And I think that argument now on the left is a very, very interesting argument. The idea itself is interesting, and the debate that's being had about it is interesting. On the whole, the left has tended to want to double down on a kind of great society vision of how public programs work. I think the UBI is quite different than that and suggests something interesting about uh, what might be coming. I think there are also ideas about offering public programs as options in private markets. That's a very interesting debate on the left and in some ways very promising. On the right, I think a lot of what's going on is about is about making subsidiarity real. That is about about using public policy, including at the national level, to enable experimentation at the local level. Now, in the abstract, conservatives have talked about that forever, but I, I think we have seen in recent years more work being done both at the local level, especially in education, and also somewhat at the national level, that tries to make that a little more real. The promising thing to me is that these two actually fit together pretty well. They suggest a kind of 21st century policy debate that is about how to enable more options, more private sector options from the right, more public sector options from the left. These two could actually work together pretty well and in some respects could even improve one another somewhat. And so there's a promise there of a, of a potentially actually constructive 21st century policy debate in a country where everybody expects to have a lot of choices in every realm of life. That makes sense to me as a left-right debate. But that, that's an optimistic way of thinking about where policy debates are going. <laughs> yeah, I think that is. Um, what's the best advice you've ever received? Hmm. In a sense, the best advice I've ever received is just slow down. And I think that it's great advice for people who... Uh, it's great advice for anybody in any realm of life at any time. But for people like us who who work around politics and who always face the who always face some incentives to have an instant opinion about everything i think slowing down is hugely important and i try n never to write about anything that happened yesterday i run a quarterly magazine that will have opinions about today's debates in the spring <laughs> um, and in some ways that's countercultural in some ways it's not smart people want to know now what you think and you're more likely to be influential now but I, I, I think that there's a real way to exercise influence by, by separating yourself from that, by offering some added value that comes from letting ideas percolate, thinking over time. So I'm a believer in the quarterly journal. I'm a believer in writing books for several years and then putting them out even though it was written you know, a year and a half ago. I think that's worthwhile in itself, but I also think it's especially valuable now when our 
culture of analysis and commentary is so instant and so fast. Uh, slowing down is a good idea. Uh, at National Affairs, the, the journal you edit, uh, something I've noticed, you guys do a little bit of work online, but you've not tried yeah. to create a big daily online presence in the way that some of your competitors have. Yeah. Has that been... Has that been a conscious decision? Is is that related to that argument? Yeah, very much so. Uh, you know, some of it is just we would have a hard time competing on that front. There are places that do daily commentary and do it well, and are and have the resources to do it. And for us to try to compete with them would, would be a little silly. But some of it is also conscious. I mean, National Affairs is a quarterly journal. It's a journal of essays. Um, we publish long form pieces about public policy and politics and political ideas. We don't shy away from frankly, dry policy analysis with numbers and figures and charts. We're trying to fill what is too empty a space at the kind of beginning of the policy food chain where ideas are proposed and digested at first. And I think that has to be done slowly and that has to be done in a serious way. And so we don't pretend to be something other than that. And we don't pretend to play in the space of uh, daily commentary. We try to help people see how things we've published in the past are relevant to what's going on now. And so when something happens, we make an effort. Two years ago, we published this piece on how to deal with uh, this, you know, with, with Puerto Rico going bankrupt. So maybe you'd find that useful now. In a sense, that's what we're doing. We're trying to fill a bookshelf that will be there when the moment comes. We can't create that moment, but it's very important that the shelf not be empty when it does come. Speaking of filling the bookshelf, what are three books that have influenced you that you think everyone should read? Hmm. First and foremost, I think everyone who cares about American politics and public life should read Democracy in America. It's a long book. It's an old book. It's really the best book that's been written about American democracy that I know of. And it's much more current now than it would have been a few decades ago, not less, uh, because it's a book about individualism. It's a book about how our democracy deals with change. It's just a profoundly wise and important book, and I really would suggest it to everyone. Second, I, I would suggest a book of mid-century sociology, a, a book called The Quest for Community, written by Robert Nisbet in 1953. And again, it's, an, it, it, it's just a bizarrely relevant book that tries to think about, about how a democratic society that rightly believes in the value of the individual should think about community. And I think it's a question that we're going to have to wrestle with more and not less in the coming years. And it's a, it's a very, very important book. I should, after that, talk about a book that's recent and uh, maybe published in the last few years. I would say, not because it's on the level of those, but because of the of the books published lately that I've read, it's the one that's left me thinking most. I'd really suggest a book that the economist Arnold Kling just published. I read it a few months ago. I, I, I think it's just out. That's called Specialization and Trade. It's a book that tries to think about economics in a fresh way. that, that It's basically a critique of modern ma macroeconomics that anybody who cares about politics would find enormously interesting. I'm sure people wouldn't all find it thoroughly persuasive, but it, it takes things we take for granted and treats them as questions in a way that I think is very, very valuable. Finally, if people want to follow your work, where should they be doing it? Well, first of all, everyone should read and subscribe to National Affairs. It's true. Um, National Affairs is one of my favorite policy journals. Well, thank it's you very fantastic. much. I don't write there very much, though sometimes I do, but it's it's the journal that I edit. It's my day job, more or less. And everyone should buy uh, my new book, The Fractured Republic. Whether you read it or not, please buy it. But 
a lot of my writing is done uh, at National Review uh, and at the Weekly Standard. I'm fortunate enough to be on the masthead at both places, and they give me a lot of room to write what I want. So you'd find me there pretty regularly. Beyond that, if you just want to keep up with what I'm doing, I'm a fellow at a think tank called the Ethics and Public Policy Center. You can find us at eppc.org, and there's a page there that just keeps track of everything I publish. So if you care for that, uh, thank you. You've all loved Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Yuval Levin. Uh, thank you to him for spending the time, to all of you for tuning in. Thank you to my producer, AC Valdez. This is a Vox.com and Panoply production, and I will see you next week. 